Welcome to Photoactive, a podcast about photography and technology. I'm Kirk McElhern. And I'm Jeff Carlson. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in this episode at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. So this week's episode is a sort of follow-up to an episode we did a few months ago about using AI tools for photo editing. And we want to talk less about using the tools than where we might be going with AI and photography. And I'm going to make a bold statement that photography will be radically different within five years because of the number of changes that AI has brought. And I had an interesting idea in the shower this morning, a place where I get my best ideas. Um, I think I had just seen someone on Facebook talk about the Fujifilm X100V camera you have. And you know it has those two, what do you call the adapters you screw onto them to make the angle wider or... I want to say teleconverter, although that that usually specifically relates to like something that you put on a zoom lens. But I think it is a teleconverter. Yeah, a wide converter and a teleconverter. Okay. So the person was mentioning, was talking about that and comparing it to digital zoom because your camera has what they call a digital zoom. And my Leica Q3 has the same thing that you can zoom to the sort of equivalent field of view at a different focal length. But all that's doing is cropping the image. So when you view it at the full size, it looks kind of like it would have at that focal length. Actually, so this all gets together with things that I read, right? And I was reading this morning about um, graphics chips for gaming that have upscaling built into the graphics chips. So you can play a 1080p game and it's 4K. And this is real time, like 60 frames per second. And this made me think, it won't be long before we don't really need telephoto lenses because that digital zoom, which is today a crop, will tomorrow be an upscale in real time in cameras. So imagine that you've got your Fujifilm X100V, 35 millimeter equivalent, Mm -hmm. and you want to get a picture far enough that you would want to do the digital zoom around 70 millimeters, right? Right. Well, you you would get that 70 millimeters and it would use an AI upscaling, which we mentioned that a lot of apps already have, and you wouldn't lose any of the resolution or more correctly – the resolution would be refined as you're doing it. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it makes total sense. And I think it's something that's definitely coming. I don't know. Digital upscaling has always been almost there for a very long time. And I would say in the last two years, it's become a lot more practical and usable just because the AI algorithms are much better at determining how to up-res that image and still make it look good. In fact, one of the things that I was going to bring up today, I have an example to show. There's an app called Topaz Photo AI that in its most recent incarnation, I was trying to fix an old, poorly exposed, low-resolution image, and it automatically upscaled it as just part of its processing. You can turn that off, but it was making the assumption that, well, of course you want this to be a higher resolution. And so we're now getting to the point where the upscaling is not just going to be, oh, do you want to upscale your images? Ooh, ooh, here, do this separate thing. It's just going to be baked in. And the results are mostly good, and I'm sure that they will just get better. We're seeing some of this already when you look at the iPhone 15 and iPhone 15 Pro where 
when you take a regular shot with that, just say you're using the the 1x lens and uh, you're not in the full max mode, which gives you the 48 megapixels. You take a shot and you end up with a 24 megapixel image. That shot is using a pixel bin version of the sensor. So you end up with a 12 megapixel image and then that gets combined with a 48 megapixel image that it creates so that what you get at the end, the, the image that's saved is a 24 megapixel image. And so already we're doing some upscaling and digital zoom and combinational stuff. I'm going to say combinational is a new word now that nobody's really blinking an eye at because they get a good looking image and it's 24 megapixels, which is better than it was before. And in almost all cases, it looks pretty good. Remember all those pixel peepers who would complain a few years ago that every time you make a change to a photo in a photo editing app, it changes all the pixels and that's bad. So you need to make as few changes as possible. Yes. Yes. I don't think we hear that anymore. Well, I've been doing stuff for DP Review lately. So you hear a lot of that in the, okay. in the comments. <laughs> but, 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 you know, that's interesting because a lot of people in DP Review have these ideas that are baked into their head from 20 years ago and 10 years ago mm -hmm. and aren't aware of how things have changed. So they're just assuming that, well, when I had a one megapixel camera, it worked like this and it still works like that now. And it's yeah. totally different. If you only look at the way Apple presents the number of different images Images it shoots for an HDR image to combine in different ways. Um, we're in a different world from those dinosaurs. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you know, to be fair, if you can compose your shot and expose your shot so that you don't have to do any editing, yes, that is going to be a better image. And yes, those pixels are going to be more. What's a good way to say this? More original, more uh, reflective more of what was captured, right? More artisanal. Artisanal, yes. <laughs> Can't really say organic when we're talking about free, pixels free and range photo sensors. artisanal bespoke <laughs> pixels. Exactly. And so, oh my God, you just described film. <gasps> As always, you want to get it right in camera, but – I think the point we're trying to make here is you need to crop it a little bit. You need to rotate your image a little bit. You need to apply a little bit of tone, tonal adjustments. It's not going to dramatically destroy your image because the tools now are so much better that they can accommodate that. They can, you know, fill in where they need to. And it usually like it, it, it never really comes to that unless you're – doing some real hardcore, uh, you know, photo correction, something that, that just started off bad that you can make better, but maybe not as pristine as if you had shot it correctly in the first place. So there's definitely a, there's definitely a place for that. Like always try to get it right in camera, but like don't sweat if you have to edit because the tools are good now. So another thing I thought of with the idea of upscaling is – and this links to our last episode where you were talking about shooting with a Hasselblad um, with a 100 megapixel sensor. We won't need sensors that big anymore or we won't need bigger sensors because we'll be able to upscale. You know, you, you had 100 megapixels. My Leica Q3 has 60. I think the next Fujifilm X100 series camera is going to have 40 and I think Fuji already has 40 in a couple of their cameras. Yeah, the X-T5 has a 40. But 
we're getting to the point where we don't need it. And and we won't need more than 48 megapixels in the iPhone. Remember all the limitations to megapixels and we were talking about last week that you can't get fast burst mode because it's got to write 100 megapixels for every photo, which was, what, 200 some odd megabits for each photo. So you can get the megapixels, but you've just got the the, the limitation of getting the pixels through the pipe to the storage. Right. But right. maybe with all this upscaling, we don't need as many megapixels. We're going to hit a limit in terms of physics of how many pixels or how many photo sites, is that what they call them, mm-hmm. you can get on a camera sensor. Um, so maybe maybe everything's going to be wine and roses in a few years. <laughs> and you'll, you'll have a 40 or a 60 megapixel sensor and it'll shoot 200 megapixels because you can upscale so much and it'll zoom in and zoom out. And of course, you won't get the full effect of focal lengths. You won't get the um, barrel distortion you get with an ultra wide angle. You won't get the um, visual compression you get with a telephoto. But of course, that can be reproduced as well. If you're doing a subject against a background, if the background can be separated from the subject, then you can adjust the background to make it look like an actual telephoto lens. Yes. Yes. I think all of these things are possible. I don't think it's going to happen quite that rosily because I think that, you know, like with rose rose tinted glasses, I guess maybe that, that's what I was trying to get at. Um, just because we also have to think about market forces. Camera companies are not going to just retire all their glass and all of that. Maybe not, but it's consumers who run the show here. Okay, let's okay. say you are a company who makes photo editing software. And you've said that Shoot with a 50 millimeter lens and we will make the adjustments in software for different focal lengths. So you want that distortion of a wide angle lens? That's not hard to make as like a, a sort of fictitious lens profile in software, sure. is it? Sure. The, the telephoto difference is a little bit harder, but you want that slight distortion of a wide angle. That's click a button or drag a slider to get more or less distortion. I think the difference here is going to be like in fine background detail. So – like for example, you're you're shooting some sort of a touristy scene. You've got a statue or something in the background. If that is far in the background, you're just not going to have the light and the detail coming through a smaller lens or a wider lens as you would if you actually had like a real glass telephoto zoom that you can bring that detail forth. And so even when you when you up-res it, the software is not going to give you the detail that you could have achieved optically. If you happen to have that 800-gram lens in addition to your 600-gram camera um, and your three other lenses, but you don't. You have your X100 whatever it is Mm -hmm. with a fixed lens if it's in your pocket and you're able to get all of these types of photos that aren't exactly what you're seeing but are pretty darn close. Yeah, it's the pretty darn close. It's I mean, that's the the sort of um uncanny valley of it, right? Where it can be pretty darn close, but if you then do want to zoom in on something where that detail is going to be more prominent rather than just a, a distant background image, then you will notice that it doesn't look like the real thing or maybe it's been uh processed. Now, I say that, but it's also not out of the realm of possibility that your camera will know that you just took a picture of the 
Colosseum in Rome, and it knows that this statue over here is this statue and maybe replace that with an image that is in the cloud somewhere. So you get that detail not from what your camera captured but from what the AI system knows of the real world. And that is going to be exceedingly interesting. So that's kind of like you go to the Roman Colosseum and instead of taking a photo, you buy a postcard. Uh, yeah, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> but with the difference that this postcard has your friends in front of it or you yeah. in front of it or whatever, you know, the, the selfie photo in front of the, the Roman Colosseum yeah. Yeah. pretending to be gladiators um, as they go in through the – what's it called? The, the – um, the vomitorium, is that what it's called? Uh, the that, place where they go in? I think that's the name of it. I don't think that's the anyway. name, but I like it better. Well, than no, no, no. In in theater, um, the VOMs, are, or short for vomitorium, is what you have in a thrust stage that goes through the audience onto the stage. It's where the people come onto the stage from the front. It's called the VOMs. We have them in the theater near here. Anyway, not germane <laughs> okay. to the topic. But, but the idea is, would you be getting the equivalent of a postcard shot with you – superimposed over the picture. So the lighting's just great. The mm -hmm. lighting on the Coliseum is you choose golden hour or something like that. And the lighting on you is perfect studio lighting. How artificial would we feel that is? That's a good question. I mean, we're already seeing some of that in a very rudimentary form with portrait mode, right? Because – Yeah, exactly. That's why I said studio lighting. Apple gives you multiple ways right. to light people in portrait mode, right. which have nothing to do with the light they're in when you shoot the photo. But I also think that you could have software that will match whatever light they're in. So if you're there in front of the Coliseum and it's a cloudy day, it's going to match those conditions with the stuff that's in the background. If you want to zoom in and there's a statue and – I'm sort of laughing at myself because I don't think that there are any statues right around the Colosseum. I was just there two years ago. But anyway, we're just going to – hypothetically, there's a statue that has some sort of detail in the background. And you say, I like this, but I shot it way too wide and so I want to zoom in. But on my little camera, you can't see much detail in the background. But maybe my software will just pull that up from the cloud, regenerate it, knowing what the lighting conditions are, which is what – Generative AI can do already. You can say, make this in bright daylight, make this in, you know, late night or cloudy or rain or whatever. But then again, if that matches what it looked like on the day, then that's probably okay. But is it photography? Now, in this case, it doesn't really matter because well, is, is it real? I think the real question is: Is it, is real? it real? Is it is it an authentic image of you being there? But we could argue today that digital photography does not present an authentic image of anything. It is processed in so many ways. Even if you shoot raw, there's processing going on. There's all sorts of things in the background that affect the way an image is written to disk. Yeah. This is like um, – there was a thing. We'll, we'll put something in the show notes. Uh, one of the Samsung executives made a boneheaded comment saying that no 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 photography is real anymore like it's impossible to to to, to do that which uh, splitting hairs uh, yes in 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 some way but he he sort of said it in a dumb uh, dumb way but um okay so let's well, say if you, if you think about it if you think about it let's just take any kind of photo in raw 
And you start adjusting the shadows and the highlights. That's not real. Yeah. Once you do that, it's not real. You adjust the contrast. That's not real. Now, contrast is something that you can adjust uh, with an enlarger, but you can't adjust shadows and highlights. So once you get into things like that, it's not real. Yeah. So how much do we care? That's the thing. I mean, for for our our touristy picture, uh, we don't care at all. And I would bet, like, it could do all sorts of processing that we don't even know about, as long as it is a good picture of me showing that I am at this place. Then that's perfectly fine for most people. Now, what if you are a a landscape photographer? And you are making, you know, prints for sale or calendars or things like that. Then you want to zoom in on something, and part of that gets replaced by AI. Does that mean that you, uh, like, incorrectly captured the day? Does it really matter? Does it matter? You're not selling truth. You're selling an image. There you go. That's that's it. And I think the only time when you were selling truth would be journalistic photography yeah. where yeah. it's important to know that, no, this is exactly what we saw here. But even in journalism, you're only selling part of the truth because there's a photo inside the frame and everything else that's outside is not in that picture. You know, the right. classic example is when there's a protest of about 30 people, but a photographer takes a photo from a distance with a long lens to make it look like there's a lot more people, and it's not the truth. I'm sure that's or, never Or happened. when you get the photos of a certain ex-president at his rallies, and he's got the people behind him on the stage, right? And then if someone takes a photo of the audience where half the seats are empty, it's totally different. Yeah. 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 But I agree that, that – Journalistic photography reportage, um, it should be truthful. It doesn't mean you can't edit the photos and adjust the shadows and the highlights and crop and airbrush and clone and, and things like that. But you have to do it with a, a truthful intention to not try to hide something um, because hiding it would change the message of the image. Right. All right. We've solved AI. Um. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think I think – Given what we've seen in the past couple of years, the the, the rapid changes in AI, and, and I'm extrapolating from text AI and audio AI as well. Um, I'm seeing these things where you upload a 60-second sample of your voice and you have an AI voice that can read anything mm -hmm. and make it sound fairly realistic and make it sound like you. Uh, I'm seeing – uh, deep fake video images. What was it? Back to the Future, where they put Robert Downey Jr. and someone else in the in the scene, and it looked like they were actually the actors at the time. And that's a couple years old already. I don't know which. Oh, uh, Iron Man Two. That's, that's no, no, no. Back to the Future. They took Robert Downey Jr. and someone else and put them into a scene from Back to the Future. We'll find the link and put it in the show notes. Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't know it's about not, this. It's not new. This was one of the early deep fake videos. Oh. Um, and now it's so much easier. One thing that yes. I find really impressive – now, uh, I worked as a translator um, for a number of years when I lived in France. I translated from French to English. And I did a little bit of subtitling for films, um, which is a particular type of translating. It's not truth because you're limited by the space. Um, when I was working, we had 18 characters per second. I don't know if that's changed. Mm -hmm. So – 
you might have words that are too long, so you have to change them to fit into the space. Now, they have tools that do real-time translation and dubbing in the same voice as the original actor with the lip movements adjusted to match the dubbed language. What? Wow. Yes. That now, of course, it's going to put a lot of people out of work because um, dubbing is extremely common in a number of countries, particularly Europe. A German friend said to me, um, I don't want to hear the original actor. I'm used to the actor who's dubbed the actor. Right. I mean, they're used to whoever has dubbed Tom Cruise or George Clooney or whatever. So when they hear the original actor, it's surprising for them. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I've not, I've not seen this. That sounds fascinating and terrifying at the same time. Well, it is very terrifying. Um, there was a great story about 10 days ago. Someone in Hong Kong um, was called onto a Zoom meeting with the CFO of his company and several other people and instructed to wire 200 million Hong Kong dollars, yes. I think 20 or 25 million US. And all the people on the call were deep fakes. Yep. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. So we've got a lot of, you know, truth, et cetera. We're, we're not talking about video. We're talking about photography and, mm -hmm. and the type of photography we're doing is meant to be representative. Although, although there might be people listening who do abstract photography and there are all sorts of photographies like that. Yeah. But the, the, the point that I'm thinking is that this is going to change so much that we may not need all this camera gear much to the disdain of the, companies who sell lenses. Yeah. And we may transfer our gear acquisition syndrome to something else, right? Could be. Um, single malt whiskeys instead of buying lenses, <laughs> you know, something like that. If you get the right glass and you look through it, it – Exactly. If the optical qualities of the glass – forget the big round uh, ice cube ball, then you can yeah. get a certain amount of uh, – never mind. But I think, I think we're going to have a lot of changes. It's going to be a change – equivalent to when we went from analog to digital. Yes. So here's the thing that I'm going to come back to is going from here to there is still quite a lot. So we see with generative AI that it, it can do a lot of very impressive things. But for us to be able to say make that capability in camera is still going to take quite a lot. Now, I, I'm not saying it's out of the realm. But just because of the the massive processing that is required to do this and do this well, this isn't something. Well, that's maybe going we to be don't right have to do it in camera. Maybe we can do it in post. What was that camera yeah. some years ago that that didn't have a lens that just captured all the light and then you post processed it? The Lytro, I think. Right, right. Yeah. So imagine something like that where you can do everything in post. Inst you know, like in 24, um, enhance that image. Uh -huh, and yeah. that's what we'll see, you know, the <laughs> zoom from the satellite to be able to see what the guy's reading on his phone, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And maybe it won't be in camera. Maybe the digital zoom in camera will still look the same and won't have that um, upscaling. Uh -huh. But maybe you'll know that once you get it onto your computer, you'll be able to make that. And in fact, there'll be some sort of exif data in the photo for that digital zoom. So the editing software knows to upscale it for that digital zoom. Yeah. And the editing software will have uh, profiles for the camera, knowing what features it has, what kind of lens it has, and how it can alter the data from that lens to simulate a different lens. What you've just said, if 
five years ago would be bonkers, bonkers science fiction. Yep. And now yep. I can picture how all of that would work and how we get to it. And also I think a key part of this too is the audience. I think there will always be an audience of photographers who want to shoot through glass, get optical everything. That's fine. It'll probably be a smaller and smaller audience, but that's that's the trend that we've seen over the last several decades. For most people, as long as they get a good shot, they're not going to care. Going back to my experience with DP review commenters, I've done a lot of sample galleries of the iPhone 15 and 15 Pro and 15 Pro Max, and so many of them comment and say, yeah, well, this is fine, but it's not as good as my, you know, insert basic camera that's in a, in a drawer somewhere. Uh, <laughs> which is which is kind of the point too, oh, right? Oh, snap. And so um, – and, and you're like, yeah, you're right. If you have a better camera with better glass and a larger sensor, you are going to get a better image. But millions of people are getting perfectly good, even sometimes exceptional images out of a a smartphone it, with all of its processing, with all of its you know noise reduction and like all of that. And that's perfectly fine. And so as long as you get a good image or you get an image that reflects what you saw or felt at the time, that's kind of the important thing, right? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. There we go. We can go on yupping for a while. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's we've always had that. We've had that from the people shooting an Instamatic camera in the 60s and the 70s uh, compared to people shooting a real camera with a real lens. Mm-hmm. And you get the photos you want for what you want. The difference is the, the low-end quality these days is so much better than it was back then. In fact, the low-end quality is better than pretty much the high-end uh, back in the film days. Yeah. Uh, so it, it's it's – the, the, it's a pyramid, right? Most of the people are at the bottom of the pyramid. They want to shoot photos of whatever they've got. They're on vacation. They're at a party. They're at the beach, whatever. And the people at the top, they're maybe artistic photographers and they're using an 8 by 10 view camera. And it's always going to be like that. Mm-hmm. But I think that low end is going to get better. In fact, I think the middle end is going to – the middle end. The middle is going to get better as we get these AI tools allowing us to upscale, to have – um, more subtle adjustments to have adjustments. I mean, I'm just thinking some of the photos that I've shot where you're looking at dark areas and light areas and you can finesse them, right, to mess with the shadows and the highlights. But AI tools, you'll have a slider that will give you something that slowly moves the darks and the lights to the place you want. It'll be so much easier than today. And, you know, just think, was it last episode when we were talking about masking in Photoshop, how you had to uh, make masks pixel by pixel to separate objects out? Um, You no longer have to do that. You select something, boom, you replace the sky. Mm -hmm. You remove the background of a photo on the iPhone. It's, you know, we're, we're so close. The thing is, we've got these disparate AI tools or AI features that do different things, right? We haven't got to the point of a sort of total AI edit. I, I, yes, we have the, the, the auto button on some software, et cetera, yeah. Yeah. but it's still limited in the features that it uses. Um, you still have to call up a lot of different features. 
um, individually to get where we'll probably be able to get that auto button or that magic wand is going to be really powerful in five years. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, and you look at what what it can currently do. Something like uh, Luminar Neo. We we talked about this uh, offline. Um, like it has a slider that is literally like the make this picture better slider. And you yep. can you can also go in and you can you know tweak individual elements and all of that. But for I would say most of the pictures that you edit, you could actually just take this this uh, accent AI slider. Move it up, looks good, and then you're done. It's not going to be the case for everything, but for most of the things, it does a really good job. And I think that's just going to, you know, propagate throughout all types of software because people are going to expect. I took a picture, and I know it's not quite right, but I don't know what to do with it. Make this better, and you go boop, and it makes it better. And that's that's kind of all all that's needed sometimes. Okay. All right. Snapshots? Snapshots, yes. Have you got a snapshot? I do have a snapshot. So my snapshot is a Kickstarter that in the nature of Kickstarters, uh, I uh, backed it and it was months and months and months ago and then I forgot about it until it arrived, uh, which is a Parrot Pro teleprompter. And it's – a little tiny teleprompter that you can set your your iPhone or maybe like an iPad mini in. Um, it's, it's nice and compact. And the reason I got this is because I've done some video stuff over the last couple of years. Uh, not like YouTube stuff, but for example, when I updated my book on um, Adobe Photoshop Elements for uh, Pearson – Part of the the deal now is you have X number of, of instructional videos. And it was just me doing a voiceover. But I've found that it's much easier for me to read from a teleprompter than to just wing it, as you can tell by me speaking right now. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> but getting a good teleprompter can be big and expensive. And in fact, I own a big and expensive teleprompter. And I should say this was one that was – teleprompters can be massively expensive if you go on a pro level. This was sort of mid-range and I thought that I would be using it more often and I, I, I just haven't. And then when this came out, it was um, – I think on the Kickstarter, it was like 150 bucks, perfectly reasonable. Right now, if you were to buy it, it's – oh, yeah, it, it's $150 and it's just a nice little – compact way to be able to have text that you can just read. And I'm also sort of intrigued to see how this would work doing like video calls and things. Like if you have a, an important video call, you can set it up so that you're actually looking the person in the eye rather than looking at the screen just below. So I've received it. I have to admit, I unpacked it just to make sure that it was not broken. So I haven't actually used it, but it was a nice surprise to have it show up <laughs> after months and months of waiting for a Kickstarter. Kirk, what do you have this week? I have an app that it's one of these apps that's in my toolkit that I use every now and then. And when I use it, it's so useful because it does things that are, well, useful. Um, I was updating one of my take control books um, this morning and I needed to do a little bit of work with images, screenshots. I use an app called Acorn for screenshots. It's a very powerful image editing tool and I just can't 
use it for photo editing because it doesn't have the interface that I like. But for screenshots, it's perfect. So my snapshot is an app by the same developer called RetroBatch 2. It is, as they describe, a node-based batch image processor, which means that you can mix, match, and combine different operations together to make the perfect workflow. So node-based means that here's a node that reads a file, and here's the next one scales it. The next one changes the color profile, the next one adds a border, the next one writes the images. Um, You've got hundreds of things that you can do with it. You can batch process thousands of images. You can scale images. You can, I'm just going to read some stuff from the website, add, remove, or change location data, such as GPS coordinates, um, edit uh, EXIF data, trim transparency from the edges of images, rotate images, crop images by a fixed amount, convert from one format to another, etc., etc. It is incredibly useful when you have repetitive things like this. Now, for us, when we're writing these books, we use uh, RetroBatch for a specific way of processing images for the Take Control books. It's a workflow that our editor, Joe Kissel, developed. Um, which would manually take a couple of minutes for each image, right? You'd be opening dialogues and putting in the the size to scale it to and pressing return and doing all this, and it's boom. Um, so RetroBatch is not the kind of tool you'll use every day unless, let's say, you've got to process thousands of images every day. You're a professional photographer. Um, but it has an extraordinary number of uh, features. And I'm just going to talk about the machine learning features that are new, Super resolution image scaling powered by alien technology nobody really understands. And that's kind of what we were talking about before the upscaling. It can auto straighten images with the new auto level node. It can recognize text in images and filter images using the rules node or via JavaScript. The same way that uh, Apple devices can read text in images now. It's not for everyone, but if you do manipulate image files often, as we do for screenshots or with photos, um, extremely powerful app. There is a... Um, let's see, I think there is a standard version and a pro version. And you can buy the standard version and upgrade to the pro if you want. But you can try them out and great, great tool. Anyway, so Acorn for screenshots if you use it and RetroBatch 2 for manipulating all sorts of images. Good choice. Okay, that's enough for this episode. Next time, let's see, we've reinvented the camera. We'll find something else to reinvent. Uh, we'll reinvent photographers. Ooh, good idea. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Photoactive. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in this episode, at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. We couldn't afford the end. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash photoactivecast. That's photoactivecast in one word. You can subscribe to Photoactive in your favorite podcast app or on Apple Podcasts. See the links on our website. And think about leaving us a rating or review in iTunes or in your podcast. 